All right, um, we are uh, in part two of our sermon series on Romans, which I think is probably the most important book in the Bible. And uh, I stand firm in that claim. If you want to argue with me, that's fine. Uh, but I really believe Romans is special. It's unique. I think it is um, maybe the only book in the Bible that you could have it and nothing else in the whole Bible and um, make enough sense of the gospel to find salvation in Christ. I really believe that to be true. It's just a, a, a masterpiece. It's a work of art. And uh, in today's passage, what Paul is doing is uh, trying to break up a fight that had, that had divided the church in Rome. And if you heard me last week, you know that he didn't know these people. He had just heard rumors. And already, just two decades after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, already the Christians were divided in Rome. And you don't need to know all the reasons why. You, you, can just, uh, you can just sort of trust me when I tell you that the church was torn down the middle. But, but what was really driving the division were the cultural differences between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So Rome was 99.9% Gentile, which is everybody else except Jewish people, non-Jews. Rome as a city, 99-point-something percent Gentile. But Christianity as a movement was in the first half of the first century, 100% Jewish. So all the early Christians were Jewish people. And if a Gentile wanted to follow Jesus, then the belief was, well, they had to first uh, become a Jew. And so they had to give up their dietary restrictions. You know, they had to, they had to take on new rules and regulations. That The men, the adult men had to be circumcised. And if you've ever looked for just the, the holy grail of proof that the resurrection is a real thing and that Jesus is really who he said he was. Imagine these Gentile men uh, going, yeah, it's fine, just do it, just whatever. There's... I know we haven't invented, you know, general anesthetic yet, but, uh, and I know there's probably all kinds of microbial infections on that blade, but it's fine, whatever, I love Jesus. So, like, that's a pretty... It's a, it's a pretty good piece of evidence. Now, it all changed, however, in the year 48 AD. And there was this meeting. It's documented in Acts 15. And it's called the Jerusalem Council, which is a very, I don't know, white European way of saying some people got together one time. And they, <laughs> it was the Christian leaders. And they were disagreeing too. And they were disagreeing about the fact that all these Gentiles wanted to become Christians, but they didn't all want to become Jews first. They just wanted to follow Jesus. And so what should we do? What would Jesus have us do here? And what they came away with in that meeting was, hey, we should not be putting roadblocks in their way. If following the Torah is going to be a roadblock in their way, then we shouldn't make them follow the Torah. You know? So let's not make it difficult for the Gentiles who want to follow Jesus. That's the quote from Acts 15 from Jesus' own half-brother, James, who was leading the Jerusalem church at the time. And so then everything changed. And so whereas before in this very Gentile city of Rome, uh, the church was primarily Jewish and the Gentiles that did convert became Jews first, after 48 AD, uh, anybody could come be a Christian. And around the same time period, there were two different expulsions of the Jewish people from the city of Rome. Two different times, Caesar got sick of their antics. Mostly it was the Jewish Christians, but the Roman authorities didn't know the difference between Jews and Christians. They just thought it all was the same thing. And these Christians were up to no good. 
from the Roman perspective, they were saying some other guy was the Lord and the Savior. Caesar was the Lord and the Savior. They were saying that uh, it was the church's responsibility to feed the Roman poor. And it was the Roman government's responsibility to feed our own poor. And they were doing it better than the government was. And it, it upset Caesar. So he expelled all the Jews from Rome twice in the late 40s and early 50s AD. And what happened during that time was the churches in Rome were left in the hands of the Gentile leaders. And when the Jewish people returned, the expulsion was over. They returned to the city. They returned to the church. The one thing that looked and felt familiar to them before they left in this foreign city that felt threatening in every other way, their church was home to them. They came back to these churches that had been under Gentile control. They weren't reading the Old Testament anymore. You see what I mean? Like they, they didn't care about Yahweh. They just wanted Jesus. And there was this whole new problem. Like Jesus sounds like a much nicer guy than Yahweh. Let's just deal with him. You know, that kind of thing was, was prevalent in the first century, even into the second century. And, uh, and so there was all kinds of discord. And, and the Jewish Christians, they, they started making their own churches. And having their own little kosher pollocks. And they, and they, you know, did everything different. They had, they had church and synagogue like, like they thought it was meant to be. And, and the Gentiles were not about it. And so Paul had heard rumors of all of this. And he writes to try and bring them together again. And as I talk about this part of his letter, I want you to picture a room full of these Christians, Jews and Gentiles alike, coming together, not liking each other, thinking the other side is the problem. Imagine... Them reading, whoever the literate one is in the community, he would get the letter and he would read it aloud to the whole community. So Paul wrote his letter to be read aloud. And I want you to imagine as we read different parts of this passage from the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, um, how it must have sounded, what it must have done to that room full of people who were divided. Because Paul is a master rhetorician and he is a pastor as well. And he is doing something in between the lines that hopefully I'll be able to make clear today. So uh, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read the first part of this passage. Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 18 is where I'll start. It's in your study guide that you were given. It's also on the screen or, you know, in your Bibles. So <laughs> uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is just 18 verses in, and Paul immediately just goes negative. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. This is in the verse after he said his thesis about the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel of Jesus, salvation for all who believe. Right. And now he says, the wrath of God. And this, I'm just going to stop there and just explain this because the wrath of God is a phrase we hear a lot. And usually when somebody says wrath of God, what we think we mean is fury and fire from heaven, punishment from on high for the things we've done. Wrath of God is like a three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. We picture God red-faced in the sky coming to get us. That's not really what the Bible means when the Bible speaks to the wrath of God. I mean, God's character is different from ours. He's not throwing tantrums like we do. So the wrath of God, biblically speaking, usually looks less like mindless rage driven by fear feelings and emotions and hurt, and more just by resignation. The wrath of God is the self-restraint of God, leaving us to deal with the consequences of our sin. In fact, there's another word for the wrath of God, and I think it's very simple. It's just consequences. 
no matter what you believe or where you spend your Sunday mornings, you have to deal with the consequences of your sin. And he lets you. He doesn't force you not to sin. He could, but he doesn't. Because we believe God is the, the highest form of good. That's, our, that's how we conceive of God. He is the highest form of moral good. And so that, that would mean for us that God, therefore, must be self-sacrificing love. Like that's why we say God is love. That's why we say God, the perfect image of God is Jesus, innocent Jesus, dying on a cross for sinners like us. That's why we conceive of God in this way. But because God is love, he's not going to force you to love him, even though he could. And so you have to deal with the consequences of your sins. You have to deal with the consequences of my sins. I've got to deal with the consequences of yours. And we all deal with the consequences of each other's sins and shortcomings all the time. That's really what the wrath of God means here. And so when Paul says the wrath of God has been poured out, he kind of unpacks it in the verses uh, to come. So let's keep reading in that first. Yeah, there we go. The wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. So it is already known to them, but they reject it, basically is what he's saying. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images made to look like a mortal human being and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So Paul is doing something intentional here. When he talks about these people out there creating idols, worshiping idols, living in depravity, he, is, he goes on after this, honestly, I'm not going to read the rest of this chapter, y'all can, but he gets even darker. He makes like a list of people who are just in, in his mind or in the minds of the holy ones in the community that he's talking to, especially the Jewish believers who have been criticizing the Gentiles for centuries for these idols they've been making. As that letter is being read out loud in that church in the 50s AD, the people are just like the tension. You could cut it with a knife. The Jewish people are like, yeah, that's what I've been saying about these Gentiles. Like they're the problem. Paul is right. And he's right there. They're right there with him. You know, but Paul is doing this for a reason, calling out all of these sins, uh, and, and he's saying that people have no excuse. Now, why would people who've never, let's say, heard the name of God before, Yahweh or Jesus, why would people still be without excuse for living whatever way they want to live? Paul would say it's two reasons. First, he made clear in this passage, that's through creation. God can be known. God can be fully known through creation around us. At a minimum, uh, God can be known just by the gratitude in your heart because you can wake up every morning and go, wow, this place is pretty beautiful. 
I wonder who did this, you know, or like, you know, it didn't come from nowhere. You know, things don't just appear. You know that everything that exists in the universe is contingent on something else. And if you trace it far enough back, the breath in your lungs is not something you deserve or just appeared out of nowhere. It's a gift. And so everything is a gift. But we don't live like it's a gift, usually. Usually we roll out of bed and say a four-letter word and grab our phone and just get on with the day. Like we don't get on our knees and say, thank you. In Paul's culture, in the honor culture that he's writing in, it would have been a disgrace to not bless or give thanks to the benefactor of all these good things. So God can be made known through creation. The second thing Paul says in, another, in chapter 2 and in other letters, he says that God can be, can be made known through the conscience. Anybody, regardless of where you're born or when or what religion your family is, anybody can know God because we all have a conscience. If you think about it, it kind of makes sense because how in the world do we think we know right from wrong? Why in the world do we think that right and wrong exist? Where do we get these notions from that there's me over here doing the right thing and y'all over there doing <laughs> the wrong thing? Like, and we believe this to be true regardless of what religion you profess. If you're not a Christian, there's still secular people who call themselves atheists or agnostics who believe in the notion of objective good. So it's not just good for you. It's good for everybody. And it's not just bad for me. It's bad for everybody. That's why people who claim no faith at all in God still feel like they have a platform to stand in judgment over other cultures that do things other ways. The example that comes to mind is like cultures that keep women quiet and covered up head to toe, you know, in a 150 degree heat. Like let's, let's cover up from head to toe. Like they, there is a sense that it's okay from here to judge people there and say that is not right. And it's not just not right for me, it's not right for anybody to be treated that way. Where do we get that authority from? Where does the idea come from that it's okay to say that there is objective right and wrong? Paul would say it's from the conscience. But what's happened in our culture is that we've developed a sort of perverted lesser sense of what Paul's trying to show us. And we've developed, because we don't want to really surrender to or submit to the will of God, we've developed a lesser version of it, and we call it karma. So karma is a lesser understanding of the grace and judgment of God represented in the Bible without that inconvenience of surrender. <laughs> so karma says, yeah, there's right and wrong, and if you do the right thing, the right things will happen to you. If you do the wrong things, then bad things will happen to you. The key to life is just to be a good person. How many times have you heard that? I hear it all the time. I don't need to go to church. I don't need your religion, preacher. Just, I'm just going to try to be a good person. And that's karma. That's well-intentioned stuff. If you're good, then good will happen to you. And you, as I said, you don't have to be a Christian to believe it. Think about uh, the things you hear, like, uh, well, the universe will reward your kindness. The what? Like, the universe is giving rewards now. Like, that sounds to me like a deity. But it's just the universe. Okay, okay. We don't have to talk about God. Okay. Uh, Mother Earth is angry with us. And so she's sending us these storms. 
to punish us for our sins. What? Atheists? Like, you can't talk like that. Envy and atheists at the same time. Like, pick a side. You know, like, one or the, one or the other. And what is Mother Earth getting upset about? Who is she? Like, uh, anyway. Seems like we're confusing created things with the one who created them, uh, in a sense. And, uh, and it, it kind of leads us down some, some pretty uh, difficult paths, some idolatrous paths. So let me get back on track here. At the end of this letter to the Romans, Paul does lay out some pretty heavy accusations. He says, there's people out there who are God-haters. There's people out there who are insolent, arrogant, Violent, angry, wrathful, malicious, murderous. And with every word, you can just imagine the, the temperature in the room rising a little bit as it is right now. He says they're, they're just out there doing whatever they want, having sex with whomever they want, however they want, whatever they want. You can imagine the tension rising in the room like it is right now in this room. <laughs> and, and Paul, again, is up to something. Because every single time he shares another adjective about those people out there who are less than us, he's getting everyone in that room to agree on one thing. And there is one thing that we all as human beings agree on, regardless of creed or race or nationality or when you lived. Every single person who's ever been alive has known this one fundamental truth that we love to have someone to hate. We all love to have someone to hate. We love having an enemy. You love having an enemy to hate and judge. And if you're trying to be nice right now, I see right through you. You're a liar. You're a liar. Give me five minutes and a cup of coffee and I'll get it out of you. I'll find out who you hate. Everybody loves to hate somebody. And that's just the truth. And the Jews in that community who heard this stuff about those Gentiles making idols, yeah, those are the bad guys. And the Gentiles in that community hearing all this stuff about, you know, religious judgment and all this stuff, yeah, I hate those guys. And you too. I've lived enough lives. I've been on both sides of every aisle by this time. I used to be a Marxist back in the day, my pre-Jesus days. Far left of center and... Uh, you know, I was privy to conversations in that tribe. I know who they love to hate. I used to love to hate them too. It's Ted Cruz mostly. And uh, <laughs> you know, Republicans and conservatives, and people who believe in radical ideas like family and gender. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, <laughs> but since becoming an evangelical five and a half years ago, I've been privy to other conversations. I've been to events and, you know, part of online groups and stuff where people are mostly really right of center. And I've become pretty traditionalist in my views on a lot of social issues because I don't think you can take Jesus seriously without taking the Bible seriously. And so it just changed everything for me when I had my mind made up about Jesus in the Holy Land. It was radical. I lost a lot of friends. But uh, I know who people in those camps love to hate too. Socialists and feminists and 
Hillary, mostly. And so, <laughs> I mean, the vitriol, you know, that we, that we focus uh, on other people. And you know why we do it. You know why we all love to have somebody to hate is because it makes us feel good. And I don't mean like feel good like warm fuzzies. It makes you feel like you're a good person. If you can compare yourself to the people you hate, it doesn't matter if you had a bad day, at least you're not them. Like, I made some mistakes today, but I'm not her. Ugh. Like, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Other people aren't, and that's okay, but I'm a good person. And that's all that I'm here to do. And the problem with this, with this worldview, this I'm a good person worldview, is that it will be the death of you. Because there is no stopping that train. When it leaves the station and all you think you're supposed to do in this life is just to be a good person, if you're really thoughtful at all about it, then you will enter into what I call this hamster wheel of good. And you will chase and chase and chase and run and run and run, regardless of whether you try to pursue this karmic, you know, good in church or as a secularist, it doesn't matter because the result is the same. You run and you run and you run and you never know how good is good enough. You never know when it comes to this kind of karma, how good is, uh, is good enough. And so uh, you, you have this, uh, these issues. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll share three of the issues you run into with this, I'm just a good person, that's all I'm supposed to be. And I, this, this might be too close to home for some of you, and just trust, I'm coming at this with love, I hope, uh, because I've been there too. The first problem is that because uh, you're just supposed to be a good person, and that's the point of your life, there should be some governing cause, some North Star, or true north that you can look to and measure yourself by. But I think this is an issue for a person of a secular mindset. If you're not sure about God, but you think you're supposed to be a good person, I guess my question would be like, why? If being bad is so much more fun. And not just, I don't mean to be flippant, but being bad is how many of us evolved if all we are is just matter and energy and the results of natural selection and all we are is, uh, you know, the product of survival of the fittest, then why don't the fittest keep surviving at the expense of everybody else? Why don't we take advantage of people who have less? Why do we believe in rights for people we're not related to? Who cares? Truly, who cares? Especially if there's not enough to go around or if my kids can have a little something more than somebody else's kids can have, then what's to stop us from saying out of sight, out of mind, all that matters is me and mine, right? So I'm not saying you can't be good without God. Please don't hear me saying that. That's not the same argument. That's a different argument. And I won't be making that argument. Uh, I'm not saying that you have to go to church to be good. In fact, don't come to church if what you're looking for is good people. <laughs> I don't mean this church. I mean all the other churches, but like, that's not what church is for. We're a mess. The reason we're here is we're a mess. We're a recovery group for our addiction to sin. That's us. We're all a mess. Every Sunday should start with, my name is Eric and I'm whatever, you know, sinaholic. 
So uh, that's the first problem. Second problem is that there really is no measure for how good is good enough. And you will never reach the goal of goodness. There will always be someone better than you. There will always be something more you can do. And you will live an unsettled life. Your soul will be constantly unsure of where you stand and how good you really are. Because the things that used to make a person good don't anymore. It's a moving target. Now, every mom in the room right now knows exactly what I'm talking about. It used to be way easier to be a good mom in the eyes of others than it is today. The internet screwed that up. Because there's not a mom in this room right now that feels like a good mom. You've been made to feel like you're less than good because there's something more you could be doing. Do you hate your children? Like what? What are you thinking the way you're raising your kids? You're a really good mom, truly. But no, no, there's something more you can be doing to be good. Moms aren't the only ones that feel the pressure, I don't think. I think it's men, too, probably, like generations ago, a few generations ago. Uh, what it meant to be a good man was to work hard and provide for your family. Provide enough for your family that your wife can do all the grocery shopping. <laughs> that used to mean you were good. Seriously, people looked at you with respect. They saw your wife at the grocery store every week. And now if you make your wife do all the grocery shopping, you're a jerk. You're not good. You're a bad guy. You have to do all the grocery shopping, or at least half of it. I and mean, it makes sense because a lot of women are working. I understand. I'm not, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's a moving target. But what you had all of a sudden when the world changed is you had guys rushing back from the office, uh, you know, to the grocery store to fill their grocery carts with food for their family. And there were, there were guys standing in checkout lines with grocery carts with their chests out and their heads high thinking, I'm a really good man. Until I started looking around and seeing the people around them were staring daggers at them and their grocery cart full of non-organic food. <laughs> what is wrong with you, man? You want to poison your children. What used to make him good? A good man in the grocery store with his grocery cart full of stuff. Look what I've done. Now he's just another sinner. Might as well not even be there. So he gets his cart back out into the store. He empties all the non-organic food and he fills it back up with organic, overpriced foods that won't kill his children. And then he goes back to the checkout line and, and he notices people kind of approve of him now. Until so he gets to the front of the checkout line well, there's a checker there going, where are your canvas bags? <laughs> Did you not bring your bags? And he sheepishly says, no, I'll be needing you to bag those for me. In paper bags, sir? Yeah, yeah, in those 100% uh, recycled paper bags you've got right there. Listen, hell hath no fury like a Whole Foods checker <laughs> putting your groceries, organic or not, in their brown paper recycled bags. Listen, it is never going to be enough. And whether it's through religion or a secular worldview, you will chase good until it kills you. Because it will never be enough. The third problem I have with this karmic justice is when it infiltrates the church. When we Christians adopt a, a mentality of karma rather than what the gospel really says. And we 
give people the impression that what we really believe is that we're the good guys and everybody else out there, that's, that, those are the, the bad guys. We're, we're the good guys in here. And so some of you uh, like grew up in churches where you had that mentality. I'm going to read this passage to you and I want you to hear what Paul does to people when he's got them all worked up. He's got them zeroed in on the bad guys out there and the good person right here. This is what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you therefore, Christians, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. All right. So the point isn't that sin doesn't matter. The point isn't that anything goes. It's such better news than that. Some of you grew up in churches where you heard that adage that I grew up with, which was uh, something that Christians say to try to sound gracious towards sinners. We said, love the sinner, hate the sin. And I know it's well-intentioned, but it just misses the mark in some very important ways. It misses the point of the glory of the gospel of Jesus. Because really, what it does is it insists on shining the spotlight on someone else's sins. This mentality completely forsakes Jesus' instruction not to take the splinter out of someone else's eye before removing the log out of your own. Look, the, the promise of the gospel isn't that, well, it's all good, it doesn't matter. The promise of the gospel is that, uh, yeah, everybody's a sinner, everybody's a mess, but I am the chief among sinners. I am the worst one. And at my worst moment, my worst day, God came to reclaim the worst part of my heart, spilling innocent blood for my guilt and shame, for me. And he set me free from my sin. Do I still make mistakes? Yes, but my mistakes did not preclude me from coming to Jesus and neither should anyone else's. And when we come to Jesus, he works with us through our sin. And we, the church, don't have to be the standard bearer at the door. Have you left your sin behind before? You know, No, we welcome people in just like he welcomed us in and we trust the Holy Spirit to work with believers through whatever sins hold them and bind them. This is so much better than karma. This is so much better than the world view that we have been living in. You are not a good person. And if that's hard to hear, I would challenge you to consider the possibility that you're hearing it through the wrong filter. Because when guys like me stand on stages like this and say, you are not a good person, what you hear is compounding shame. I'm trying to manipulate you and control you so that you'll join my church and give 10% of whatever you make, so whatever, you know. Like, that's what people hear when they hear people like me say, you are not a good person. Listen, the Bible doesn't say you're not a good person to make you feel worse. The Bible says you're not a good person to set you free from the trap of the karmic hamster wheel. So you can step off of that wheel and get away from that exhausting pattern and way of life and claim your freedom that Jesus came to give you. You are not a good person and Jesus loves you as if you are. And by his love, 
He redeems and restores and one day will perfect his image in you. You're not a good person and you've never had to be. God never set that requirement for you to come and know him. God, we've gotten it so wrong at times. But this is the gospel. Come as you are and know that you are loved and free from the patterns you've been stuck in. Would you pray with me? God, it set us free. Those of us who are Christians and standing in judgment over others, set us free. Forgive us. We repent. We repent. And those of us that are of a secular mindset, unsure of this whole Christianity business, set us free from our old ways of thinking so that just for a moment we consider the possibility that there's something more going on than just matter and energy in our lives, that there is a purpose, a will, a mind behind the universe, and that everything created, including each person in this room, has a purpose and a calling set before them, a value they are of inherent worth to you. God, help us to have the courage to take the first step of faith to consider uh, your goodness, even in light and in spite of our lack of goodness. We love you for your grace and your mercy that sets us free. In Jesus' name, amen.